Welcome to another episode of Zero Ambitions, a podcast about sustainability, the built environment, and zero carbon goals. So this week, it's just me, Dan, and Jeff, with two great guests that he lined up for us. We have Drs. Oliver Canaan and Richard O'Hegarty, both of UCD, both taught knowledges when it comes to sustainable construction from academic sides with a lot of practical understanding too. Now they've just published a paper titled A Whole Life Carbon Analysis of the Irish Residential Sector, Past, Present and Future. As these things go, it's really interesting. It's a really significant piece of work looking at carbon consumption and forecasting it in line with Ireland's National Development Plan and Climate Action Plan anticipating the impact that they have on carbon consumption using a methodology that accounts for consumption, not just production. They're able to anticipate any performance gaps in policy and actuality, thereby giving us a chance to develop strategy to mitigate it. Now, I say we, like, I appreciate I'm based in the UK and Jeff's in Ireland, they're in Ireland. But man, the challenges are all the same. Weak policy or unsatisfactory policy being implemented generally quite poorly. Things are getting better and there is hope. Anyway, I'll stop soapboxing and we'll get into the episode in just a second. Heads up, it's quite a technical one. We get into quite a lot of talk about methodology with lots of meandering diversions along the way. And in fact, you join us whilst we are Introducing our guests in quite an accusatory manner. Quite unfairly, obviously. We wouldn't have had them on otherwise. Anyway, right, I'll stop talking. Here you go. Cheers. I, I don't imagine you two are charlatans the way Jeff has talked you up, but he does want to dig into your methodology. So, uh, yeah, and you know, I've, I've only um, uh, sort of started to read uh, only the newest of your reports as well. I've been I'm going through it. Um, it looks very impressive, but um, but uh, sure, we'll, you know, uh, we'll we'll probably have to do more discovery through talking to you about it. Um, so we'll, you know, uh, there's that journalistic trope of being like the the naif, you know, kind of um, just asking the stupid question, but it'll be sincere in this case, you know. Yeah, Candide um, with a a, a rapier like wit and a, an awful lot of experience in the sector. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's perfect. That's what we want. So yeah. Cool. Well, shall we consider ourselves? Uh, started. I mean, yeah. it might be a quite a nice uh, open to start with me sort of subtly challenging you about being uh, charlatans and snake oil salesmen. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how you jump to that as a starting point. But, uh, yeah. What, um, what is it in our work that would lead you to such a thing? <laughs> Dan's, Dan's just getting to his particular age and he's getting suspicious of the other one is um, when I um, was at university, uh, one of the, at the start of one of the um, e-courses, the professor gave us a reading list, um, accompanied this book list by saying um, that probably two thirds of the books on the list were um, by academics who had nothing new to say and we're cloaking that fact in impenetrable language <laughs> um so I, I wouldn't accuse you of that either no i don't know why I'm <laughs> it. 
you're you're setting up a lovely foundation here for us anyway to, to <laughs> well I, I mean i know your work um and um and you know i think you my, i haven't been able to from from what i've seen so far i haven't really been able to pick um holes unfortunately uh, to the extent that i would even be capable of doing so you know so uh, i think where the holes could potentially be picked it's not really picking holes it's trying to find out how things work because the one of the biggest challenges that we've got in addressing these macro challenges so climate carbon etc and then social justice if you like uh is that everything is much more complicated than you first imagine, no matter how complicated you imagine it. Like it's uh it's elephants all the way down every single time. Like every action has a cause, a, a reaction, and a layer of bureaucracy that inhibits either acting properly or fulfilling its potential. And like trying to get to the bottom of any of this stuff. I mean, you've got to start somewhere. And from like I only had the opportunity to read the abstract of your work today because uh, I've had a oh man. It's been a day. Anyway, I mean, it looks like everything that uh, I've seen in it reflects my experience of talking to people within the sector and uh, listening to Jeff bang on about it, who knows an awful lot more than I do about the subject. Which is which is not saying much. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I, I that, that's absolutely there. untrue, like I, Jeff. <laughs> No, yeah, that's definitely unfair. I, I can vouch for that as well. If, <laughs> I, Good, I, thank I, you. You always Maybe ask good questions. Oh, sorry? You always ask the right questions. Oh, Jesus, right. Yeah, um, that's yeah. part of the um, so, so, set up for that. Well, let's actually start asking some as well. Because, you know, it's, it's, it's what I think we should uh, avoid doing in this case is just um, starting from a position uh, uh, where we don't get the basics down of what you've done, right? Um, I think I think we start there. So, the, well, should we start with who you guys are yeah. and what you, I mean, it might make sense to focus on the most recent uh, paper that you've done, but I'm sure that will come with reference to last year's work as well. Okay. So, I mean, they kind of go hand in hand, I guess, would, would be what we'd say, you know, well, well one, one led from the other. Yeah. And it's probably, they're probably the first two in a series of four or five papers, we hope. Um we have we'll hopefully have a second re, what we call the resi paper or residential paper to follow this this first one which are projections out to 2050 and and also kind of looking at a range of different solutions so you know and and also kind of uh, taking into account the other work that we've done which i suppose is looking at the operational gap between um these kind of buildings as designed and these buildings actually in operation due to the post occupancy evaluation work that we've done through through years of research and then we'd want to do a kind of what we call the whole life carbon paper that paid that first paper in the series which quantified the whole life carbon of the irish built environment that's just kind of setting i suppose that's a, a baseline study so we're saying you know tracing back all the kind of carbon emissions that we can associate with the built environment over the last 30 years what is what what is the proportion that's that the built environment is associated with mm -hmm. uh, and that's what we that's the 37% we came to which is more or less consistent year on year based on our methodologies that we can talk about and, and Richard can certainly do a better job of, of that than I but um but uh, the, the next paper in the whole life carbon series will kind of look at look at um projections out to 2030 
um, modeling different scenarios and different public policies, strategies for for retrofit, etc., uh, with the aims of getting towards a you know on the path towards net net zero by 2050. We'll see how realistic that is. I guess similar to what we did with the residential paper for that specific sector. And the reason we started with the residential paper, I suppose, is because the data is richest and most uh, robust for. For the residential sector, there, there's much less data available for the for the non-residential sector, mm-hmm. um, and and that's kind of, that's kind of prob- problematic in a lot of ways. But we're 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 working with what we can uh, at the moment. But we, should we have started with uh, introducing ourselves? Well, well, exactly. Like, yeah, yeah. So let's, who who are you? Uh, why why are we talking to you? Okay. <laughs> uh, well, I'll start, Richard, if you don't mind. I'm I am uh, Oliver Canan. I am uh, an associate professor at the School of Architecture, Planning, and Environmental Policy. I have been UCD. Yeah. At, at, at University College Dublin, yeah. yeah, yeah, and Richard and I lead what we call the Building in a Climate Emergency Research Lab uh, there, where we have a, 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 a number of students working across a range of projects, everything ranging from um, traditional and historic building fabrics and retrofit to com- models of compact urban growth, to heat pump analysis, to... Um, what else are we doing? We're doing. We're working with Dunleary Ratdown County Council to kind of try and develop their town centre as a green building neighbourhood as part of a European pro bono project. Wide range of projects. Uh, a lot of we do a lot of concrete. We do a lot of materials, that kind of stuff. And I I've been doing that for years through Trinity initially, where I first met Richard, um, then Queens, and and now UCD. A building in a climate emergency lab. That's quite a name, isn't it? I mean, Jesus, stop it. You expect these kinds of academic august institutions to have very dry, um, you know, names that sound like they've been around forever. I, that's, that's pretty scary. <laughs> My anxiety just went up a notch. <laughs> They're usually named after a colonialist, so you may have been triggered, Jeff. <laughs> um, I suppose I, I, as part of the master, so I also run a master's program or set up a master's program. I don't run it anymore, actually. My my very hardworking colleague, Philip Crow is now director, oh, yeah. but I founded it about two years ago. It's the Master's in Architecture, Urbanism and Climate Action. And the major core module of that master's is architecture in a climate emergency. So yeah. kind of year on year, we've been kind of changing the the curriculum, you know, for that module, just to kind of reflect changing focus in, in architecture practice. And then we decided that the lab would rather than just focus on architecture, which sometimes tends to kind of focus on the stylistic and the representational of, of buildings. And the tiny percentage of buildings that actually have architecture on that. <laughs> yeah, very true. <laughs> very true. We decided, we see our work much more kind of at the coalface, I guess, and working across the construction industry. Um, and, and so we said, we said we call it building in a climate emergency. If we got Richard, wait, Dan, wait, we've got to get to Richard. Richard. Oh, yeah. I suppose, like, taking off from that, I got, like, I'm, my background's engineering. I graduated as civil engineer in 2012, and then at that time, there wasn't many jobs for civil engineers. So I said I'd do a master's. That's where I met Oliver, who convinced me then, or well, tricked me into doing a PhD, (laughs) (laughs) which was on which was on kind of facade engineering. And that the facade is an interesting one. And we've kind of taken that research through to now because the facade is the kind of piece between the embodied energy and the operational energy and the the work we did at that time was on using concrete as a solar absorber 
So when you look at solar technology and solar research, a lot of the research is on trying to increase the efficiency of solar panels. We looked at it from a different perspective. We said, okay, well, this fabric exists. Can we use that as a solar absorber? There's research in uh, Switzerland and Austria on using aluminium facades. In Ireland, there's a lot of concrete facades. Can that be used? So that was that was what the, the PhD was on. After that, I kind of kept working with Oliver. Uh, he had moved to UCD at that time, so I joined joined him in UCD. And then after a project where we worked on concrete, trying to make concrete cladding lighter, less embodied carbon, more efficient, uh, I also I split myself into I became a part time academic and I work part time with industry. And I joined TechReach at that time um, on their research front. I'm now uh, with and cladding uh, facades company. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And there was the, they're doing a lot of work on making their products more sustainable. Um, after that, I, I'm now with RKD Architects. I joined RKD in September and I maintain that part time role between industry and academia. So, yeah. And our, I suppose our, our latest work in UCD is where we're kind of bringing it all together. So, as Oliver said, we've looked at heat pumps, we've looked at insulation, facades, concrete, so on. And this is kind of bringing it all together and saying, okay, what's the big picture? Is is this relevant? Do we need to care about this? And I suppose that was the key result from our modeling work was that, yes, it is important and it's going to be even more important in the future. Um, so, yeah, that's that's my background. You guys, you're, you're sort of straddling the rarefied world of uh, academia in quite a practical sense by the sounds of things, actually working in the industry and you use the word coal face, uh, yeah. which is something that lots of people avoid uh, once they get into academia. Yeah, you have to base yourself and uh, in, in, you know, in, by talking in those terms, actually getting your hands dirty almost, you know? Yeah, yeah. well, I, I, I think like both of us are very drawn to the materiality side of, 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 of architecture or building, I suppose. I mean, we're both, we are both engineers originally, I should say that too. And then oh, I, I kind of... I kind of studied architecture belatedly after doing my PhD in, in engineering. Um, so I, I and then I so I guess I was always kind of drawn back towards the kind of um, you know the, the tectonic side of architecture as opposed to the stylistic or side of it, you know. And yeah. uh, I, 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 I do I do enjoy the cultural history of, of architecture too, and we do do a lot of work, particularly you know trying to save. Uh, kind of uh, gems of modernism that are being are so poorly regarded around around Dublin and, and things like that. I work, I work with Ellen Rowley um, and and people like that, uh, you know, to to try and uh, further that cause. But uh, um, yeah, you know, otherwise, yeah, we like to, I suppose we like to work with materials. We like to work with structures. We like to understand how buildings kind of stand up and um, well, more recently, why they're coming down and 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 the impact of that happening and um, you know this kind of new kind of cycle we're in where you know we're just demolishing and rebuilding now with like service lives of 20 years for buildings that you know are, are totally i mean I, I live in a neighborhood here in portobello in, in dublin where nearly all our local buildings are that were built in the late 90s are now you know set for demolition in the next year or two it's kind of that's a really interesting point because when, when i've looked at the modern carbon before um uh so i remember it was peter rickaby was talking with uh, uh about this um in the UK, at least, um, the historic average um, for stock replacement for housing is 0.5% per annum, which indicates about 200-year um, lifespan. But 
that's you know that just because that has been the case, uh, is, you know, we don't know historically. That doesn't mean that that, doesn't, that figure doesn't mask um, problems with some newer built homes, either because they're unloved for for whatever reason, um, or because there's constructional problems. I know a lot of people, for instance, talking about um, uh, ticking time bombs as the one of the PPP and PFI finance projects in the UK, public buildings that were you know being that are being handled back now that are just a complete mess you know um um but it's like you know we we, we had this period of time in uh the middle to the to the end of the, of the last century where all bets were off and there were some you know changes i suppose in in, in build methods and and and, and 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 you know in terms of the quality and so on that may have uh turned that kind of system on its head well i, w- I was listening to the the new episode of the trash future podcast last night where they were talking uh, it's the patreon only one so it's not publicly available sadly but check the trash future podcast if you're into stuff like finance and uh tech and why we're all getting ripped off about everything they were talking about how from the 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 tech influence tech industry's influence on cities in myriad ways but the bit that's relevant here is how the price of real estate or rather the price of land rather than just real estate has led directly to uh homogenization of the aesthetics of buildings and the enshittification of to borrow i think it's Corey doctorow's term uh of buildings as a service or the built construction as a service because so much money has to be spent on the land and everything is being done at the last minute because prices fluctuate in markets it's actually a global market it's being driven by investment as much as anything else rather than just finance the corners are being cut at every turn and costs are being saved in case they don't need to be spent that just means that standards have dropped and dropped and dropped to a point where they're sometimes unsalvageable hence the really really poor standard of build which you particularly see in those Student accommodation models. I don't know if you have them in Ireland in the same way, but in the UK, where they build a tower block to like lots of little dog cages for students, moldy little, cold, horrible dog cages. Yeah, it's uh, about student halls in the UCD. Lovely, yeah, great. (laughs) On the small side, but yeah, they they are past those standards. Yeah, that's right. Richard, you did a you did a study of them, didn't you? I know we we monitored some of. Uh, some of the rooms there and uh had some <laughs> interesting results and just some overheating problems weren't there yeah there was and i just come back to i suppose the comment of the coal face i and your initial comment about macro modeling the the benefit of doing that kind of research with your hands like whether it was going in and monitoring a heat pump taking it apart getting your hands dirty with concrete whatever it might be it means that when you do the kind of macro modeling studies and you get a result that doesn't seem to resonate, you can then test it and validate and verify it. Yeah. So we feel that by doing both the types of research that we we, we have a better understanding of, of some of the assumptions, because when it comes to macro modeling, it's, it's all about kind of making the right assumptions and embodying carbon quantification. The mathematics is simple. It's just accounting. It's making the right assumptions, which is the challenge. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that's it. And like one of those studies was, as Oliver said, going into this building in UCD and monitoring those. I spent many a day with Donald, Donald Lennon, who was um, he's he works part time with us. He's an he's ex technician. He's brilliant. Like he he knew, taught me so much about sensors 
and understanding where they go and why they need to be there. Mm. And without that knowledge, you have data and you take it for granted. You have, oh, well, that sensor has an uncertainty of whatever it might be. And yeah. that's the data. And then you start analyzing it. But you need to understand also how they work, where they're installed, and then you can have confidence in your in your kind of yeah um, context is so important to to be able to draw any sort of reasonable conclusion so in terms of the 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 paper that you put out the latest one yeah the latest one yeah a big part of the reason why we asked you to join us is because jeff keeps touting that graph that shows this this the assumption that uh operational carbon is going to over the near future reduce to a point where embodied carbon outweighs it massively and that's going to be the big challenge and so rather than just keep bollocking on about that particular graph we thought we'd get you on to tell us all about it as well um do you want to tell us a bit about the paper the the research you did and then jeff can start picking holes in what you've done and asking he can do his uh his candide trick um maybe i'll let you talk about the research oliver but just quickly on the just to get it get it right, it's not an assumption that the operation will go down. It's a what if scenario. So we're, what we're saying is, if we do everything in line with what it says in the National Development Plan and the Climate Action Plan, this is what will happen. Operation will go down and okay. it will go up. Whether we think that will happen or not is is an entirely different different story but oliver you might want to just quickly <laughs> that makes it all a lot more relevant for uk markets as well that you're dealing with a what if because uh <laughs> we can still think about it in those terms yeah well you see i suppose the the, the, the thing for us as, as we started doing the macro analysis kind of study um of, of the of the built environment in ireland like well, what's involved there really was kind of and correct me richard if i'm if i'm wrong on any of these details but we're like essentially we're the ipcc uh, in in inventory of the, the the method by which you kind of the categories by which they analyze carbon emissions within any country around the world um does not include a built environment or a construction sector category um it includes in Ireland it includes a residential sector but that is only the the fuel related to um fossil fuels related to the running of the of the houses the housing stock within the country so excluding then electricity and unregulated loads and things like that um so what we decided to do or what the well was the Irish Green Building Council who really approached us to do it they they you know they they commissioned the study and they wanted to kind of gather all the other elements of of the built environment particularly they they have a strong focus on embodied carbon i've really been pushing that agenda i think you know and, and they're amazing i mean they're ridiculously good work they've been doing now sickeningly yeah 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 it really is they, they, they've done great work you know filling a gap there that, that kind of because the saai focused very much on, on operational and, and like it, it really needed to be to be kind of championed by somebody and then they did um but they so what we did then in response to that was kind of gather all the elements from across all the categories, including industrial processes, energy, uh, transport, any you know all the bits of those sectors that are related to the built environment, and brought them together to um, to kind of quantify them as as the built environment. And we did it not just from a production-based perspective, as the, the EPA or, or the IPCC would do, but we did it from a, a consumption-based perspective, because there's an awful lot that we don't produce in Ireland that we use in buildings in Ireland, mm -hmm. such as um, 
all, all the metals, you know, like so. So we pr- pr- we produce an awful lot of cement here, export a lot of cement, but we don't like since the steelworks in Hoboken closed down a number of decades ago. We d- we don't produce any steel, we don't produce any aluminium. Yes, we're building, you know, curtain wall corporate kind of headquarters all over the city, data centers all over the countryside. You know, it's like you know, it's it's, it's a lot of high embodied carbon um, metals that we're using. Mm-hmm. So, so the, the so we did a consumption-based analysis, which added that a, a kind of additional layer to it as well. I think you know. Yeah. Um, Sorry, go, go on, Richard. Do you want to jump in? Yeah. I was just going to say on that point, the importance of that is that if you were just to focus on production-based emissions for the built environment, you might have a case where we say, okay, well, let's not build anything out of concrete. Let's just build it out of steel and aluminium. It won't show up on our accounting books yeah, exactly. on a national scale. But we're not solving the global. This is yeah, this is why the UK has looked uh, so good in, in in terms of Kyoto, thanks to Margaret Thatcher closing down industry. You know, um, just get just get people from the other side of the world to to to, to make things for you, and uh, and then and then buy it from them, and then and then you're grand. You know, uh, that that just basically that's it, and that was the the a big motivation for the study to to switch it from a production based accounting to a consumption based accounting. And the, the interesting thing was that when we looked at the embodied carbon numbers nationally, both using this production-based and consumption-based accounting method, that the numbers were basically the same or more or less. The difference was the breakdown in materials. So again, as I say, if you were just to look at it from what we actually produce in Ireland, you would see, okay, well, concrete's the problem. Let's stop doing everything with concrete. But then at the same time, you're importing potentially more carbon intensive materials. So you have to look at what's actually being used in the building itself, because that's the function, and then try to reduce that. I was thinking about this last night for some reason, because I'm sad like that. And I'll see if I'm if I've got this right. But um, uh, if you go production-based, and you take it to the nth degree, it's uh, the concrete industry in Ireland uh would be dead against that right um you know the uh in, in the sense that it would make um uh products from overseas uh, which don't tend to be concrete just tend to come here from overseas at all um uh look much greener essentially you know what i mean um uh if if, if um if you're ignoring um the emissions from from manufacturing from overseas effectively you know um i don't know it, um but it, it's Anyway, the point is, the point for me is that you're moving away from uh, accountancy without the sleight of hand. In, in other words, it's, you know that that's the, the kind of critical thing for me that you're you're actually trying to have, um, you know, and body carbon, whole life carbon gives if we do it right gives us the opportunity to uh, to, uh, to 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 understand uh, the impact that you, you that you take as a specifier or uh, or somebody who's procuring a building uh, because of course. In reality, climate change and those doesn't doesn't recognize borders, you know, it's too glib. Yeah, well, and I think the other thing that jumped out to us as we were doing that study was kind of, you know, like these very definite policies at government level, say the the national retrofit policy, 500,000 homes in a seven year time reason kind of thing. And you're going, okay, so so that'll reduce the operational energy. But like, what is the real impact of that? Like, if we're to quantify the built environment, from in the, the real impact of the built environment from a whole life carbon perspective, yeah. you know, how how relevant and worthwhile is the is the is the the national retrofit policy in that case? 
And I suppose, you know, that's the second paper, the residential paper focuses exactly on that. It looks at the national retrofit policy and 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 this idea that we'll build all new buildings to NZZ standard into into the future. Um, and and it quantifies, you know, the 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 the, gain, the 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 gains that we can achieve by doing that. But then it's, it looks at other policies like the housing for all strategy. You know, we we have a housing shortage and we need to build houses, no doubt. But mm. the embodied carbon input that is going to result from doing that is going to, you know, in a re, in a whole life carbon sense for the residential sector, going to swamp the the gains that are achieved from the national retrofit policy. Um, and that, I suppose that's that that's really the focus of that that newest paper. And and then the next layer of that that we want to do is kind of say, well, you know, how well is retrofit working anyway in the first place? You know, like if retrofit yeah. doesn't work as well as it is claimed to work and not, not all these homes reach B2 standard, not all of the heat pumps run at, you know, COPs of four, four and a half or whatever, and instead run at two, two and a half that we've seen in other studies that we've done. Yeah. Um, you know, then then what's the real balance kind of thing, you know? And what are the other strategies like that we might do? Things like uh, rejuvenating vacant properties or whatever is one thing we want to quantify in the next study that we're doing, you know? How can we, you know, how can we reduce that embodied carbon load by working with what we have, maybe maybe saving these office buildings from demolition, repurposing them, et cetera, et cetera. You know, what, how can we get creative with this, I guess, you know? Rather than just having these kind of very siloed government policies that focus huge amounts of money on unproven strategy, really, you know? Yeah. Then we, like, we don't have, we don't really have enough post-occupancy evaluation data of, re- of homes that have been retrofit to say it's a worthwhile strategy yet, really, you know? I, I, I know you got you had Shane on, Jeff, and, and like Shane has done some of the best work in you know in the country but you know we're all involved in that work they're, they're small sample sizes of, of of buildings really we need to kind of in my mind analyze nearly every building that's retrofit should be um you know installed with, with, with monitors to check that it's it's working to heat flux sensors to check that the in-situ u values are are as they're designed and we should learn from each one and, and create that, that you know that that evidence base that we can develop. Yeah, and, and look through the you know it'd be fascinating to see. I'm sure there's going to be research showing um, the impacts of uh, even buildings that have been monitored before of the, the winter we've just come through. You know the energy crisis, what that what impact that's going to have on 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 behaviour, for instance. You know, um, and and also on building fabric too as a consequence. Of, you know, there's kind of issues sitting there too. It's a fascinating one, and I think I think it's important to to say as well. And I'm sure you're um, you'd agree with this, Oliver. That you know we can't expect even if we build uh, to uh, sound like Enerfit, for instance, or Passive House, whatever. You know, you're never going to find every house that's meeting, say, a B two or Enerfit or whatever, performing like you know uh, performing in, in line with it, because of course you'll have different kinds of occupants with different kinds of occupancy patterns and. You know, even if the assumptions are right within the, the software tool, assuming perfect model occupant, uh, or we're seeing buildings build, build properly, people will, will use it slightly differently. Um, but um, it's it's rather focused on on whether whether on average they get the results right. Mm. And and just to pick up on that point, Jeff, like from a macro level, when you look at it from a whole life carbon perspective, what we can say in our initial results, retrofit does make sense. Like from the initial result. But what we're saying is, while it does at this kind of level, what we need to do is get more information on it, understand where those embodied impacts are. So for example, a photovoltaic panel, if you retrofit a home, that's gonna be 
the biggest portion of your embodied carbon by a long shot. Whereas <laughs> if you use cellulose insulation or if you use uh, natural insulation, it almost doesn't show up in the spreadsheets because it's so small. So in particular, so it, it does so well, I think, because it's it's not just because it's uh, a recycled product and therefore you don't own the, um, the emissions from the manufacturer of the raw material in the first place when it was you know, made in paper. Because, the, you know, some recycled products have a, are a high energy manufacturing process, or, you know, uh, whereas cellulose, it's really, really low, uh, low energy to, to, to do so. The products like that, that I think are huge, huge, huge potential. If, you know, presumably we go on printing paper. <laughs> yeah, well, see, this is it as well. But even, even the, say, higher impacting insulation materials, like from a whole, from this macro level, it still does seem to make sense. But the question is, where is the limit? Because as you continue to add more and more insulation, there's diminishing returns on your savings, just simple mathematics. So it's it's not about just keep adding more and more insulation. It's identifying what the right amount is. And we're probably like in the standards now, we probably are about the right amount from a whole life carbon perspective. Well, I've got a curveball to throw to you there for that. Go on. So go on. what about... Um, these lunatic passive house designers um, who are brave enough or mad enough, depending on your perspective, to offset the investment, the extra investment in fabric against uh, a smaller or in some cases no heating system. Has it, have you looked at quantifying that in embodied garden germs? <laughs> I, I, ha I haven't. If you want to, if you want me to comment on my, my opinion. I want the research done on my desk Monday morning, yeah? <laughs> Well, we, on, we like, it, in fairness, we we looked at at, at Mel, Mel Reynolds was in the so we did a study of in situ U values of of a lot of many, mainly um well there were no there were both new builds and and retrofit homes we will we'll send you on that I think I, when I met you at the RDS Jeff I think I said I'd send you on that paper and never did um but uh, but we one of the houses we looked at was was Mel Reynolds uh, um, house out in the Muse house out in Sandy Cove oh yeah where. In some cases, like on on the underside of the 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 undercroft, yeah, he what did like he what did he have there? Richard was like six hundred mil of 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 insulation or something like that. Yeah, but, but his his rationale was actually really good because his rationale for putting that insulation wasn't to get a really low U value. It was because he was worried about thermal looping, and. I, I don't know, should I explain what that is? But it basically, it's when you have gaps in your insulation and you have uh, heat flowing around. So the effectiveness of your insulation isn't there. And what we actually found was that the when we studied other homes, that the U-values in situ weren't actually matching what was uh, targeted as in design. Whereas in this case, where he did add, add that in for that reason, that he actually achieved the U-value. So that was that was interesting. So what what we kind of found from that study was that what's more important about putting in loads is uh, loads of insulation is making sure that the design is robust. And in that case study of of Mel's home, it was obviously a really robust design. The bloody needs to be because that is one where I don't I think it's just air based heating and he got, he got rid of any hydronic system. He didn't put an underfloor in the D or or rods, you know. Um, so I mean, this is a recurring theme of the podcast. That it's the design that matters most. And then what matters equally most is the actual implementation of the design. Like mm. you can't have one without the other. You can't have the, the the best fitter in the world following a shite design will ultimately do shite work. 
There's no yeah. getting around it, really, is there? No, there's no getting around it. But I I wonder in the in that in that uh, hierarchy is is it more the installer or the, like the contractor is more important? Than the, I mean, you need a good design for sure, but you could have a good design um, that you know is badly implemented, and it'll just like we worked with other architects on retrofit projects, and in some cases, you know, they they went to great efforts to really design all the details well and things like that. And we 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 came back to them with the results. In some cases, showing new values, many multiples, what they designed to, right. and they were you know they were shocked to see it, um, so, and and, and they, couldn't, they couldn't explain it, and we couldn't explain it from analysis of their designs. It was just on site bad practice. We think you know yeah. Well, it goes back to um, there was this famous study that I always go back to. I've got a few people, but three or four pieces of research, three or four facts that I know that I trot out, which sound very impressive. Um, the veneer. It's like the town, the, the cardboard town in Blazing Saddles, you know, um, my knowledge is. Um, but um, uh, Professor Jan Lecomte at uh, uh, the KU, is it pronounced Leubens or Leubens? I don't know, the Dutch University. Which yeah. one do you know? Uh, it's a KU Leuven, isn't it? Leuven, there you go. The Leuven, oh, yeah. Leuven, it's like a New York kind of Jewish New York kind of pronunciation, yeah. Um, so, um, um anyway the point was that uh that this paper famously from i don't, I don't know if you know it from the 80s uh, i think it was um which took a bunch of different uh wall buildups into a lab and ran hot box tests which is the test you use to measure the u-value of insulation uh, and uh looked at varying degrees of accuracy of how well the insulation was was installed in the wall and they found there was one wall which is cavity wall with 100 mil bat of mineral wool insulation, uh, which you'd never see in Ireland, but you would in the UK, you know, it's the cavity. Um, and uh, I think they had, um, it was 0.35 U value theoretically. And when they had a 10 mil gap between the insulation and the inner leaf, and it may have been on the perimeters of the board as well, I can't recall, 0.35 turned into 0.68. And, you know, it was just, it was a real eye opener to, to, to uh, I think Joseph Little was how I first heard about that actually. Um, uh, an article that he wrote for us many years ago, which stopped some companies advertising with us for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> I think the, the the deal is, so we have these conversations sort of cyclically with people where we start off by, uh, who do we blame first? <laughs> Probably blame the installers first and then uh, for the poor work. And then the installers say, oh, whoa, whoa, we're just doing what the designers tell us. And then the designers, uh, they say, whoa, 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 we're only doing what we're allowed to do. <laughs> You've actually got to blame the procurement people. They've asked for this job to be designed this way and installed this way. And then, uh, well, there's nowhere else. Then you go to government and that's... I think the, the, next, the next line of blame is, is, is probably the fact that buildings are complex and that's ultimately it. So we need to do like more research. We need more data. We need more training. All so, the stuff that everyone always barks on about. This is it, exactly. And I think your point earlier where you were describing doing research with heat pumps and with sensors and then speaking to people and getting hands-on experience of those technologies and how to use them so you know how to use them. So we did a bit of research with BEST about their low-carbon learning. It's, uh, Scottish uh, Built Environment Smart Transformation Scotland. What would you call them? Probably Construction Scotland Innovation Centre. Jeff always likes to call them a quango, but I don't know what they are. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't know what they're not. Like they're not a construct innovation in Ireland and in, in Galway. Yeah. You know? Anyway, 
so they their low carbon learning program it was really good sort of self-explanatory helping people within the built environment understand about low carbon building what it means blah 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 but uh what came out of that was putting the building designers through an educational program with the guys who were actually doing the work was really valuable to both sides and like the insight that we drew out of that was one of risk management like long-term risk management because if you're building to a higher quality in terms of building performance the quality of the installation needs to be greater so if you tell your guys on site what to do and why they're doing it that way in terms of delivering the highest quality well you get fewer leaks around your windows and then then that reduces the mistakes on site the amount of time snagging the the amount of time that you might have to reinstall something like take the window frame out and reinstall it which i've been privy to uh, in my own home it just it solves loads of issues you become more conscious of the materials you use more conscious about how what sort of construction matters you can become a better designer and a better installer and then you have a much better idea by having hands-on appreciation of like the more what are often esoteric aspects to the lads on site you become aware of like uh, you have a much greater awareness of like thermal performance or what affects thermal performance like these guys they have an innate knowledge of thermal bridging one presumes or if they don't you can have them acquire one quite quickly but you'd be surprised jeff like having worked on a demolition site the lads on site they were experts at practical physics like how if they knocked a bit of a wall what would happen at the other end of the building those lads they could just walk into a room and after a bit of an inspection they could see it like i remember oh i won't yeah, no, I get into a laborious uh, visual sort of anecdote. But that was that was material that was relevant to their work, so you know, thermal bridging wouldn't have been, you know. Um, well, um, you make it relevant to their work. Yeah. They learn it because if they have to come back and fix it time and time again, well, they can't. No one wants to go back to site. It's boring. Sure, if Oliver had his way, they'd be out of a job anyway because they're not going to be demolishing anything, right? You can't do a retrofit without a soft strip. And yeah. like, I never worked on a, oh, no, in fact, I worked on two jobs where we knocked the building down completely. It was just soft strip everywhere else. Yeah. Uh, and that's what you need before you get into the retrofit. But, but the point I was wanting to make uh, was that, um, uh, and to bring back to you guys, um, Richard and Oliver, is that um, one of my bones of contention with life cycle assessment, and I suppose, you know, we're not yet detailed enough uh, in this because we're still in the, in the infancy of it, is that you query the assumptions that are being made about lifespan of buildings, about lifespan of components, and about the, about the lack of consideration for the quality of workmanship and quality of detailing on the assumptions around the lifespan of the building. So I'm presuming there's nothing you could do about that, right, in your analysis. You, you just have to go with the, the normal assumptions, right? So what I might just comment, I, I think this is the key, and I think it's a bit of a paradox when it comes to life cycle assessment. How long should a building last, right? And the reason it's a paradox is because if you build a building to be durable and last very long, it's going to have a higher upfront and body carbon because you need more materials to make it last, right? So then on the flip side, you can say, well, we'll reduce the embodied carbon upfront. You use less materials and you design to 60 years. Like I I never really understood. I still don't understand why 60 years, why 50 years. It seems incredibly arbitrary 
Yeah. So I, I don't understand that assumption. We've used those assumptions because they're written into the methodologies and we're trying to follow the framework. But yeah. just thinking about it above that, it is, it, I, I don't I don't know why those are the, the numbers. Uh, you know what? The one thing I think that's useful about that, thinking out loud here, um, so it's probably be, probably by the end of the sentence I realize how little value what I'm proposing, uh, is that there's a risk if you set the uh, the time frame too long, but it'll, re- but it'll reward systems that have too big a carbon burp up front you know um so kind of i'm in, I'm in kind of in favor of Leslie's approach um where they have uh, uh this is a, what was formerly the london energy transformation initiative now the low energy transformation initiative i think they called it where they have a, an upfront target the amount of carbon that you've released into the atmosphere uh by the point of practical completion without counting the stored or sequestered co2 uh in the in the building materials and then they've also got the uh, the ready to grey, the end of life of the building. And I think that's a sensible approach, having two targets, although it confused, I don't know whether you'd agree with that, but it, it's it's more complicated to mess to do from a messaging perspective, but it seems more useful, you know. Yeah, I, I'd agree. I mean, I, th- I think Richard probably know the, the detail of this more than I would, but but uh, I agree. I think Ricks have kind of followed the same method, haven't they? In the, in that now instead of uh, accounted for biogenic uh, carbon sequestration or whatever within within the the the, the figures. I, as like in the webinar I was watching from Ricks, they were claiming that France has taken uh, taken that method of kind of accounting for the the sequestered carbon, and as a result, there's a kind of a drive towards using more bio based materials, much more timber now coming into the into the French construction industry. But Ricks were saying that they don't do that. Uh, and instead, they kind of split it out into two two numbers. It just seems sensible to me. I think the more the more transparency there is around the numbers, the better. You know, um, I I do think again the yeah, the this fifty sixty year building life um, argument is is you know is is really important. And and again, I would be try inclined to not use either as you know as the kind of a definite number. I mean, like. When, like when we talk about these buildings that I'm just talking about, the commercial buildings around Dublin, like the, the, in lots of cases, it's three and in some cases, four buildings on a s- specific site in a 60 year period, you know? So like, you know, they're, you know like they're not living. Ridiculous. Yeah. It's crazy. You know, it's crazy. And and each time with a bigger building on the same site with greater embodied carbon, because the materials are more, um, I don't know, luxuriant each time or whatever, like, you know, or like in higher, higher, higher have a higher uh, impact. Like the, the, the ESP site is, is, is an example, right? You know, like that, that was Georgian buildings in the first place, gone in the 60s, precast concrete with lovely like bronze window frames gone and, you know, built in the, in the, and was that finally built like 70s, 80s, and then like you know taken down in early 2000s, and now the the Grafton building was. And we just know. only published this uh, in the magazine, and and I have to say, um, I I probably didn't push hard enough on this, but um, Chris Crowley, who's who I have a lot of time for the the consultants, the sustainability consultant on the project, did say that they did uh, early stage embodied carbon counts um, on the project, um, but I didn't get them from him, and I didn't get. Uh, uh, an actual uh, a number on him, so I'll have to go back uh, and see. You know, he uh, he was suggesting that the figures were pretty good, but there's a lot of uh, concrete and brick in that building. You know, um, and I actually had a tour of it the other day um, uh, with uh, Lloyd Alter, the um, the Canadian writer and uh, art pixel critic. Um, uh, uh, we went around there, um, and Jay Stewart uh, uh, brought along as well, the, the Canadian uh, kind of Irish native, almost the stage uh, architect and sustainability consultant. Um, 
And yeah, it's an expensive building. And in fact, as Nick Brown, the English Passive consultant, a point that he made, which I think is fascinating, is that no expensive building can be a low body carbon building because of the money that you have to spend, the, the, the carbon that, that invariably would have been released, making the money to to uh, <laughs> to, to to put the building together. I mean, Jesus, oh. you, where do you bloody draw the line? <laughs> but I, I completely take his point, you know. Yeah. There's actually there's actually a methodology of life cycle analysis, which is uses money as a proxy for carbon, obviously breaking into sectors. So that is fact. Like if <laughs> it, it's a well, a fact is maybe a, a going step too far, but there's a whole methodology which uses that. So it's called the happens for uh, construction process, doesn't it as well? I mean, even in the LCA calcs, um, with I know with pH Rim and the, the AECB's PHP based tool, um, uh, if you don't have the emissions uh, for itemized emissions for for the construction process, you're never going to get usually. Um, there's a study that that they reference, which I think is referenced in the Rick's document, um, which has a, a kilogram of CO2 equivalent value per per pound uh, of the the uh, you know the pound sterling of the, the project value. You know. Um, yeah. So is that is that a, a methodology that's used anywhere? The wrong way of asking. Where is that methodology used, like assigning a carbon value to money? Because that's really interesting. Yeah. So in the as far as the scientific community, there's two main types of life cycle analysis. There's the process method, which is typically what's used, which is you say, okay, we have this much brick, this much concrete, this much whatever, and you apply carbon factors. That's typically used. Okay. Then there's the other method, which is called the input output method, where you use other things as proxy. And usually what's used is money. And the reason why that is valuable is because it captures the full scope. And this goes back to one of the issues with embodied carbon is that it comes down to assumptions. And when you're using the processed method, which is the one that's typically used, you can easily forget something and you can say, for example, add in the concrete, the steel, but maybe you forgot the aluminum framing or whatever it might be. Now you shouldn't, but that can happen. And this is why that other, this is why using multiple methods and just going back to our paper and why we wanted to use multiple methods, not to be awkward and not to confuse everyone, but actually to do the opposite, to say, we're going to use this method. We're going to get a result, but we're also going to use a separate method entirely. And we're going to see if they're ballpark because when there's for this type of analysis where the maths is quite simple you really need an anchor you need to know what the number should be so you can keep mm -hmm. testing it and using other methods to ensure that your number is at least in ballpark interesting yeah um uh, where that i guess the only way you trip that up is you know we, we are starting to see publishing and you know individual embodied carbon results on different buildings that you'll see you know it's very clear you can see even and, and you may have seen we did a, a piece of two issues back in the magazine on um, 11 different wall types um Excellent. yeah uh it was terribly formatted article actually because it was rushed to the end but um but uh nobody noticed it. i just remember seeing the picture and it was amazing did you, like this? Did you get the spinal tap reference the mockumentary about uh, a fake about a heavy metal band spinal tap um where there's um one of the guys um the guitarist phil Tuffnell. Uh, i can't remember nigel Tuffnell. Um, nigel Tuffnell. yeah yeah as a an amp he's showing the director rob reiner um 
and he wanted his arm to be louder than everyone else. Um, so he got the guy to custom make the arm that goes, everybody, everybody else's arm just goes up to 10, but mine goes up to 11. <laughs> and he said, well, why didn't you just get him to make 10 louder? He's like, this one goes up to 11. <laughs> um, so that's because we had 11 wall types. You run out of headlines, you know, after 20 years of publishing. So you end up kind of um, doing something stupid like that. But uh, that, the point was that we were seeing, you know, um, the most virtuous timber frame variant when we looked at the full cradle to grave analysis um, uh, of this wall type being uh, like four times better. Uh, than uh, than the worst uh, case scenario, which is standard insulated concrete formwork. Um, well, and that was uh, that's based on cradle to grave. Um, if you just looked at module A, um, there was a massive difference. Massive, it, was, it was a far greater difference because you're not assuming all the timbers being or the sequential CO2 is being released into the atmosphere in that case. You know, but anyway. Uh, um, so when you're looking at accounting for the money, do you account where it comes from? In terms of assigning it a carbon value, yeah. So there would be a geographical, uh, a, a component to it. So I haven't done any studies using that method, but I've read a lot of papers that have used it, and I, I it kind of resonates. So there was there was one very good one that used both methods, and I found that using this uh, money analogy method, that it would, the figure was almost forty percent higher than the yeah. process. Well, this comes down to the the production versus consumption because so Alex and I and our other guys we worked on a a white paper the production of a white paper about uh, calculating carbon carbon consumption against ESG ratings of sovereign debt. So, what countries are most culpable for carbon? And how can you? How are they rated in terms of ESG? So, for anyone who might not have heard us say it before, environmental, social, governance—it is a fig leaf for finance to wear and make itself feel good. Um, and uh, yeah, what they found was that South Africa was weighted much worse in ESG terms than Switzerland, in spite of Switzerland consuming carbon at an infinitely higher rate, like massively higher rate compared to South Africa. So yeah, I think it's really interesting how well this is another one. It's turtles all the way down, not elephants. Every time you look at something, it just gets more complicated. Uh, I, I let Oliver count on that because I see that that's Oliver. No, I, you... I, I, I'm actually just confused. Explain to me why why is that the case, Dan? Why, well, why is per capita the Swiss consume far more carbon uh, in the the goods that they produce? Sorry, the goods that they consume because it's all outsourced. Yeah, their travel, blah blah blah, all the things that they consume, they produce very little because they buy in everything. They're not a nation mm. of producers; they're a, a nation of bankers and mm. service providers. Yeah. So you're going to say, "Oh, Nazi gold gives off lots of CO two after." Uh, yeah. I wasn't <laughs> going to mention the Nazi gold, but methane as well, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> well, I want to go back to the paper itself. Yeah, yeah. And um, there's a few things that, that uh, were interesting. So, in the this kind of what if scenario, you're assuming um, you're assuming the what if scenario rather includes heat pumps in uh, for for all of the new homes is that right um and are you is does it is it that that the six hundred eighty thousand heat pump transition that's assumed is is all being delivered is that right yeah so i probably need to explain a little bit just broadly about how we broke down the 
the built environment in Ireland to just okay. answer that question, if that's all right. Yeah, yeah go for it. Yeah. So, so yeah, we there's obviously the BER database. So we use that. There's a filtering process. There's uh, many papers, many people have studied this. Kira Hearn has done great work on this. Um, there's yeah. also Ruben Court, et cetera, et cetera. So we did a filtering process on that, and we use that to represent the, the Irish stock. Now, you could go into levels of detail, which breaking down even further into building typologies and so on and so forth. We kept it simple to A, B, C, so on and so forth. Okay, And what we did was we assumed that for a new building, which had to be an A-rated, that that would have a heat pump and it would be therefore electrically powered. So yes, for all the new homes, we assumed that it would have a heat pump. I think that's, that, that's a, it's an interesting assumption. It's a good assumption. It's a, it's a reasonable assumption to make because um, uh, the data, because I mine that data all the time myself, so the National BR Research Tool, and the latest I saw for last year was that um, uh, 81% of new homes had heat pumps for that year for space heating and hot water, um, and a further 5%, I think, had heat pumps for hot water. So it's in, in the region of 85, 86%, okay, it's heading that way. What I think is fascinating, especially in terms of the application of this kind of research into other markets, um, um, and also in light of the very problematic clause in the proposed revision to the recast energy performance buildings directive, um, that uh, boilers which are capable of burning fuels uh, other than fossil fuels shall not be considered to be fossil fuel boilers. Bananas. <laughs> no. um, um, good job in the lobbying there, lads. Um, yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, uh, what I've seen in this space is that when you move, and I should declare my interest as the chair of the Heat Pump Association in fairness uh, here, um, that switching from uh, in an individual case from a heat pump to a gas boiler or an oil boiler, uh, when you do that, the gap between operational and embodied tilts very heavily towards operational from what I've seen. Depend, you know, in, in dwellings at least, you know. Have you looked at that? Do you mean tilts in favor of embodied? It, it, may, it means that it means that uh, operational becomes a far bigger total when you when you're on gas. Uh, yes, sorry. Um, yeah, like there's a, I'll give you an example. Mitsubishi did um, a Sibsi. Uh, TM65 calculation, there's a bunch of them. This is the new methodology that SIBSI came up with um, to calculate the embodied carbon building services. And they took a, uh, they, one of the examples that I looked at quite closely was a, a heat pump, a, a five kilowatt heat pump running on R32, which is kind of a mid range uh, global warming potential refrigerant, not nowhere near as bad as some of this, you know, uh, some of the more commonly used refrigerants in the past, but nowhere near as low as like uh, the, new, the new generation of natural refrigerants. Um, and when they, the 15 year lifespan of the heat pump in this case, it was uh, a, a whole life carbon total, taking account of the electricity used by the heat pump. And the UK, it was a projection for UK grid decarbonization scenario included in that, was five tons in total, okay, uh, for embodied and operational versus 35 tons for an equivalent gas boiler. And um, like, so that was kind of jaw dropping for me to see. Um, and um, it just, you know, it would be fascinating to see another scenario with an analysis like this, where you just say, okay, let's let's assume we switch from heat pumps and we just lock in oil boiler and gas boilers, um, and uh, 
uh, what does it do to the totals, you know? What, what, it won't get it at a macro level. It just won't get you to where you want to be. Unfortunately, like, well, <laughs> fortunately or unfortunately, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't stack up because you can't decarbonize gas or oil, at least within current technology. The thing, the thing we found from the model, which has kind of resonated in other studies that have looked at this is that when you do both together, when you reduce consumption and switch to electricity and decarbonize electricity grid, then that's where you get all your gains in terms of decarbonization um switching to oil and gas well not switching staying with oil and gas just it won't from what we've seen it won't get you there quick enough i i it just didn't stack up in in at least in our model so i don't know we'd probably be no, interested I, yeah, so, yeah. so how did your well you might want to interject before we get into this because i might be opening a new route I'm curious about the decarbonization of the grid part because mm. over here it feels like a hopeless endeavor, an aspiration to keep aiming. Tradition in the UK, yeah, but yeah, like this. All right, fair play. Well, there seems to be a great deal more actual action over there in terms of ah. reducing demand or at least making proper efforts to reduce demand to enable decarbonization. Because there's all sorts of talk about decarbonization of the grid and investment in renewables but it's not there's nothing being done about the actual grid itself that's why you got folk and looking at microgrid technology to see how they can make sure the developments that they're working on can actually decarbonize because it's not being considered strategically for an actual large-scale program not really like loads of people have said loads of nice words but like what does it even mean that. I'm gonna I'm gonna reference someone I don't actually know, but I I follow them on LinkedIn because they always produce these amazing graphs of grids uh, in different countries. The name's Grant Chalmers. Uh, you guys might know him, but um, they're the best graphs to visualize um, the carbon intensity of a grid on a day to day basis. And what you'll see is Ireland's actually almost in the relegation zone. Yes. So. So while we have, um, we do have wind and we made good progress, the next step is offshore and there's a choke point and that's getting the ports. So it's, it, that's where my knowledge of this kind of ends. But, uh, I know that what's, what's needed is, is the point. I, I, I saw that graphic today, actually, Richard, like it was, it was Ireland, Germany, like in the list of countries that he had, which wasn't comprehensive, comprehensive around the world, but Ireland, Germany, Australia, and Poland, I think at the very bottom. It's not very becoming of us to be talking about things you can't see. So we've dropped the tweet with a link to the, the table chart in the show notes. Like, you know, Poland is like 700, 800 grams of CO2 per kilowatt hour or something. Like Ireland was somewhere around 400 or 450 today or something, you know. And Germany is now around 5, 550 again. Like Germany's gone backwards because of their decision on nuclear, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Which is just like if we're talking about grid decarbonization, there's no bigger crime, I think, that's happened in, in the last 50 years than than reversing nuclear. Like, clean, like going from a clean energy source to a filthy, dirty energy source. You know, in, yeah. in, in, the, last, in, like in the last two to four years, I think, to decommission most of the plants. It's just madness. But anyway. I know that. I'm sorry. Um, no, I bet at least I think at least in the UK you guys have have nuclear, and you know I mean I think I think that's their big advantage. And Scotland's done great, gone, gone great guns on wind as well, and fairness to it, you know. Yeah. Uh, Whereas I think we'll end, we'll end up relying on on two strategies like wind and the interconnectors. Then buying in, you know, clean energy, clean electricity from elsewhere, you know. Yeah. But surely, 
I mean, there's loads of potential to deploy uh, to deploy the technology to capture all the wind. Like one of the great things you've got is coastline. You must have plenty wind knocking about. Like my yeah. experience of being there, <laughs> there was always plenty that and rain. Um, like yeah, and, and lovely, charming people uh, as well, <laughs> obviously. But we have an archaic we have an archaic grid, and um, we've a, a planning system where these this work can't you know can't get through planning. I think you know half times. I don't know enough about it really. Is the truth of it? But it's just it just seems there's a lot of talk and and little progress. You know, it feels to me as well like um, as hard as as demand reduction on mass is to achieve. Um, this is you know, there's the, the grid issues are one of the other reasons why it may, you know not just that but the fact that you get you can unlock these other benefits when you do demand reduction properly. Um, uh, you know, there's other reasons for trying to focus on uh, taking the burden off the grid, should we say? You know, in in in, in buildings. Um, yeah, but the analysis um, you didn't get so far to look at different uh, the impacts of different kinds of or what, what I should say. What assumptions did you make about uh, build methods when it comes to um, you know embodied carbon. Uh, I don't. I didn't see any reference to timber frame, for instance, in there. No. So yeah, I, I can answer that. So I suppose what, there, well, there was two papers. In the first paper, we were looking at the entire built environment, so all the construction. Mm. And for that, we could use two methods. So we used this method where we looked at how much of imported materials were, how much were exported, and applied embodied carbon figures to that. The second method is where you look at how many buildings are being built, residential, non-residential. For infrastructure, the, the data doesn't really exist. So what we have to use, we use money as a proxy. So we looked at, okay, how much is spent on infrastructure versus buildings? And we use that as a proxy. So that was that. And that's there. there's an assumption there, but a lot of the data doesn't exist. So you need do need to make these, these type of assumptions. Yeah. But for this, which is, I suppose, using floor area, as the kind of main driving metric, which is related to your question, we just use the average of a building. Now, in future papers, we can look into that into a bit more detail, and we do plan on it, but the papers themselves already are incredibly long. So we didn't want to distract from the fact that we're looking at the embodied carbon of, of buildings at, at a kind of national scale. So average figures make sense now. After that, then there's obviously a call for that. But in order to do that, we need better data. And there is projects which are starting up and are in progress uh, um, in Galway. Uh, the IGBC are doing work on this. And when we get that, what we'd love to do, and this is a call for this, is that to take that data and integrate that into our model and see what result we get then. Okay. And I think that would be quite interesting. Well, that's it. It reminds me of... Um... I don't know if I should say this. We'll keep it in anyway, Dan. Uh, when the Greens were negotiating over the programme for government, uh, Francis Duffy, uh, the Green, Green TD, he's an architect, and everybody TD, was on to me asking me, I was annoyed, I'm probably trying to, you know, influence things, uh, the shady lobbyist that I am, unpaid lobbyist, I should say, um, uh, but still shady. Uh, Worst kind. <laughs> totally ineffective. <laughs> yeah, well, as it turned out, yes, you're right. <laughs> so, um, and um, I, he, one of the questions that he was kind of asking me was, um, how much of a difference would it make uh, in embodied carbon terms if we built, uh, if we switched to all of the solar housing that we're going to build, timber for instance, you know? Um, and I couldn't answer that question. 
that's that's how we ended up doing the that that's kind of why I ended up and it really annoyed me that I couldn't. So that's why I ended up doing that um, that wall types analysis so that you can do a a proper like for like comparison and start to to, uh, to 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 resolve these questions. But you've taken it a stage further with this with this paper, and I really like the fact that you were um, making a big point about uh, identifying uh, existing buildings to to reuse. Because I just you know I get fearful with until this while this is still like the wild west, and while there's still kind of scope for accountancy sleight of hand going on, I'm sick to the teeth of seeing. Uh, um, on social media or whatever, seeing uh, the likes of an architect presenting the module A, like the cradle, the, the, the gestation and conception, conception and gestation phase, I call it, uh, embodied carbon of a, like a, a mass timber building um, and just the, the superstructure alone and claiming that it's a carbon negative building. Because, <laughs> you know, it's, it's just. Yeah, yeah. It's so reckless and it's fetishization of timber and it leads you to the conclusion that we can deforest our way to saving the world. Um, and that's, um, you know, uh, the, the sparing use of timber, you know, fine. There's a really strong case for that, um, you know, using this, the least amount of it that we can for the most effect, you know, and so on. Um, but these kind of simple kind of glib arguments, um, uh, um, which still favor, you know, and then create an opening to allow more new things to be built and the old things to be knocked. That needs to start, you know? But were you able to factor in the the carbon involved in the demolition of buildings before any sort of create construction can begin? Yeah, that, w- that would be factored in from the assumption. The thing is that the energy of demolishing is not really that high. The, the problem yeah. is that you're losing materials that's, that have carbon embodied in them or are responsible for carbon, and you're losing that when they could actually last longer. That's that's kind of the main thing. So I'm happy you brought that up, Jeff, because that's one of the... Like, the, the paper obviously quantifies something, but like we don't want to just quantify and say, oh, there you go. Mm. Like, but we want to also say what, what might work. And one, one of the solutions is to try to maximize the space that we have, whether that's vacant homes, but also vacant office space. Like, vacant office space is going to be, it's going to be possibly the challenge for architects of the future. And I, I like, I can reference my, my other employer, RKD, like, we're, we're looking at, doing some research on this at the moment, like what what is the office space that's out there and what can we convert that into rather than losing it? Because if you if you if it becomes redundant, it's it's almost the same as it being demolished in a in a weird way because it's not being used and you're building new stuff elsewhere. So it's yeah, it's trying to maximize what we already have. And in order to do that, you also really you need people who are competent, who understand concrete and understand the materials that are already there in the buildings. So you can say, okay, let's check it. Let's, can, will this last, is it worth extending? Um, and yeah, that's, I suppose, one of the key messages from our paper is that we're, we're not saying don't build new homes. In fact, yeah. we're saying the opposite. Like that's like, I, I have three siblings. None of us own, uh, we're almost all over 30. We can't afford to buy a home because there aren't any homes so we're not saying that what we're saying is that when you look at it from a whole life carbon perspective the embodied carbon of homes is significant and there are other solutions and using what we already have and it might i can't say for fact but it might actually accelerate the process as well and the call for is really for creativity and changing from 
a creative new building to adapting something into something that we need. That's fantastic, but, but it, Oliver. Yeah, yeah, but but like it, like it, it should be it should be emphasized. Actually, is the, the the lack of of data around that. Like there there are no papers, like academic studies of the embodied carbon cost of retrofit that we're that we're aware of. I think Richard, right? Yeah. We we did a couple, like say for the the college view scheme that you know down in in, in Wexford. Yeah. Uh, we did an embodied carbon calculation for that. We did one for another kind of scheme. We've extrapolated out to you know different size homes and things like that. But there, there's very little data in this field. There's very little study in this field. Like we're at a very, very early stage in the whole process of understanding embodied carbon of construction. And I think that needs to be pointed out. And, and like we say that too, because we recognize that this, you know, that we're really we are reaching with this paper in a number of, uh, you know, it's it's it, you know, it, as scientists, we feel a little bit um, you know, it's scared at times with, with some of the jumps we're making. Like, you know, but it but there's just the planet's on fire. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, that was our, you know, that's our, that's our, that's what, that's our thinking. Like, it, it has to be done. And I mean, particularly, I think in my mind, is is I go back to these these ideas of these siloed policies that the government have around, you know, like a massive schemes of retrofit. We're going to throw billions and billions at retrofitting homes. You know, we need to to actually do some scenario test that kind of idea, like, you know, and say, will it work if we do it? And uh, is there a better way to do it? You know, is is decarbonizing the grid a better option? Like you know, and and how how much? Or you know, like say the the, the actually the group I would I would like men- mention in this is the Jamie Goggins group out in NUIG. They do they've done great work where they've looked at different strategies like super insulation of homes or additional of re- addition of renewables or you know the embodied carbon cost of retrofit and kind of looked at them in the case of varying scenarios like where the, the fuel prices vary or the carbon mix varies within within when they in the electricity grid that's the kind of research that we need and it's very much lacking in the fields of 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 construction you know and and and, and the analysis of the built environment that's it's a great point to emphasize um i uh, this point you made about silos as well um it brings to mind to me uh as somebody who's lobbied for the likes of passive standard to be applied uh you know in, um even lo- by local authorities and development plans as well in the past um, one of the things that always frustrated me enormously is this separation of a building, and you have a similar thing in the UK between two pieces of legislation. You've got the Planning and Development Act on one hand, which tells you on one level how to 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 lay out schemes and you know about orientation and form of buildings and so on. And you're taking decisions at that stage that can have an enormous impact on the energy performance of the building and on the embodied carbon of it. You know, if you're not compacting up the form, for instance, or whatever it might be, um, and then. The building regulations which tell you how to do energy performance you've got energy performance targets to meet which are just to make the building whatever inefficiencies you may have you may have ignored from a planning perspective you're you're you've got to make your building you know 70 percent more efficient than the same building however good or bad the format of being in the first instance so that's what's been frustrating for me that there has been that failure to connect the two and think about uh about these things from birth principles right and um, by the same token um with planning if we can't Think about scenarios where we're allowing for different uses of buildings, you know, um, uh, uh, reusability or adaptability to allow buildings to be used for different functions. Um, then, uh, then, then, and we just park embodied carbon solely in the area of building regulations. We're going to make huge mistakes, surely, yeah. you know, huge missed opportunities. 
Absolutely. And we're making them all the time. Like we, we have this new project. I, 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 we'll, we'll talk to you about it in more detail when we get it further into the project. But we, we're doing for the SCI with the IGBC, actually, we're analyzing different models of compact urban growth is what they have us doing. And, and there's a kind of a pre-project, which is work, which is with Construct Innovate and we're, where we're talking to the developers and we're saying, you know, like, why, why, why are you building like what you're building on the edge of town, you know, detached, uh, you know, and, and like what we're, what we're trying to do actually is come up with a kind of a set of guidelines for developers and planners that that says yay to this kind of development or you know nay to this kind of development, and it's it's going it's trying to look beyond say a pure like embodied carbon calculation of the different kind of construction types, but also kind of what are the other locked in kind of emissions related to a certain type of development. So if you put a sprawling housing estate on the edge of town, you're locking in transport emissions for, you know, 50, 100 years into the future kind of thing. Yeah, you and know? the embodied carbon of the EVs at the very least as well, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. all that kind of stuff, all the road network services that have to be supplied to that, you know, the fact that you can't in the future plan a different planning or a transport system because of it, you know, like, and, and, and the adaptability, you know, like these are also not buildings that can be adapted for future use if the, if that, if the, if the you know, the function needs to change. Like, you know, they are... Quintessentially, quintessentially like private homes with two car parking spaces at the front of them, kind of thing, you know? Yeah, yeah. I'm really struck by. Sorry, I've got it. I'm, my brain is rather stuck on the idea of retrofitting offices. Like someone seriously tackling retrofitting offices to turn them into uh, places that are fit for human habitation, which all too often an office building just is not. Like I'm. I'm be really interested to hear more about that sometime because that has the potential to solve so many issues which are blockers so what you just described about urban sprawl and the the investment and maintenance that's required within that which is so frequently underfunded like woefully underfunded in terms of like community amenities and services mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like in city centers it's much easier to make that work if you've got the the space and one of the blockers that we're suffering at the moment in the UK, and in fact, all sorts of places, is post-COVID, the shift to working from home. There are all sorts of uh, investment assets mm. that are threatened at the moment. And you see lots of high-powered people talking about the, the, the need for people to return to the office to support their jobs at Pret-a-Manger, when really it's about supporting their their pension fund because mm-hmm. those investments in office blocks they've been perceived they've been safe as houses for 100 for 100 years because of the way the the system of work has evolved and like bill borders and adrian lehman they predicted in the 90s that there was no need for these offices to exist anymore but finance doesn't like change because yep. it wants things to be predictable and what you potentially end up with is a stranded asset which they don't want to lose value and if you can show them a way to make that asset valuable in a different way you know if if investment funds retail uh, retail real estate funds can turn offices into luxury flats and knock them out <laughs> like or affordable housing and knock it out or something like that like all of a sudden you overcome that issue where we've got so in London, I moved out recently. Like for service workers within, not the within the the city of Greater London, it's unaffordable. It's 
you can't afford to live there anymore. You get pushed out and you get forced to rely on flaky transport services. So exactly what you're alluding to there, uh, which are unreliable and difficult to use. And it really eats into your life in a a really unpleasant way. You're getting schools being closed down in certain uh, towns and areas, you know, parts of of countries because, because, because people can't afford to live there. And no. this is, yeah, unsustainable in the, the greater sense. And you've so got, stupid. but you have like, oh, yeah, realizing this is a can of worms that we're potentially opening. And yeah, exactly. An hour and a half yeah. into it. It's another one. It's another. Just, just yeah, to it, with, a, with a positive, from a positive perspective, yeah. architects are creative people. And what we need is creative solutions. And I think it's, if I, I'm not an architect, but if I was one, I would be excited by this challenge because I think it's a challenge that, as you said, can tick so many boxes and it needs multiple different types of solutions. And from when you look at it purely from a technical point of view, it's hard to see why it can't happen. So I think it's it's over to to the creative people. Uh, yeah, but, 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 but with, uh, with caveats, because you know what, uh, uh, creative people who are willing to actually engage uh, with with and embrace the restrictions and the challenges that, that that we need to face, rather than just thinking that they can, you know, do the kind of oil age architecture of the past. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, buildings with no facades and. and <laughs> <laughs> All right, so. Looking at the time, we should probably think about yeah, that. Yeah, we're eating into your weekends. Happy to chat. No, it's been, it's been really, really interesting. Is there anything in particular that, that either of you would like to, to flag? Any calls to action? Any um, any uh... any points you'd have liked to have made, which we haven't given you the space to? Uh, we probably can confirm, Jeff, if you wouldn't mind validating. You do not appear to be charlatans in any way. We are satisfied from our interrogation. We don't know yet. We don't, we at don't this point. Yeah. yeah, yeah, at this point. Yeah. <laughs> You'll have us back, though, will you, and interrogate <laughs> Yeah. Oh, most definitely, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, that's good news, anyway. We can uh, we can look forward to the weekend with, in that knowledge. Uh, <laughs> I mean, w- one one project I'd like to bring your attention to, I think, is and it's something that's long overdue, but is, is now happening, is, is uh, we, we have a project at the School of Architecture in... Uh, Across, actually, across all the schools of architecture in Ireland, um, it's been led by TUD and, and UCD are, are involved in all, all, all the schools, all six schools. But we're trying to reform the curriculum, the architecture curriculum, actually, to bring a lot of this kind of the things that we've been talking about today into into the architecture curriculum. Wow. Kind of move architects away from this idea of, you know, greenfield site development to kind of becoming a profession of kind of hearers and maintainers of the built environment, you know. Are you telling uh, me I'm not going to be able to complain about architecture? That's one of my pet subjects is complaining about architectural schools. Yeah, well, hopefully, by the time we're done, Jeff, no, hopefully that you'll, you'll no longer be able to do that. You'll have to find a new hobby, I think. But um, yeah, we've a, a long way to go. You know, there's a lot of, uh, not a lot of pushback. I think most people are on board, but there's, um, it's a, it's a, it's an old profession, you know, with, with uh, lots of different priorities, so. But um, I think that I think by starting, I mean, we were talking earlier about, you know, who's to blame? Is it the contractor or the designer or things like that? I mean, I think education uh, and educators. Teachers. They're to blame. (laughs) (laughs) Who are already paying teachers. Bloody academics, yeah. But uh, we're we're, we're claiming now that we're doing our bit in a way or trying to step up, I think, you know. Cool. Um, 
but all, but also trying to bring, I suppose, all this research that we're doing and trying to bring that, you know, back into into education and make it a research evidence based kind of uh, education for the built environment, you know, because it's like it's just shocking how much the construction industry is separated or is, doesn't have contact with research and doesn't have contact with education, really, like so many people in the construction industry haven't studied construction at all, you know, and and we kind of need to change that across all levels, be it designers, be it contractors, et cetera, you know. That sounds amazing. I, I um, It reminds me, uh, the, when I go off on this kind of riff, uh, I, uh, I'm i always minded of, um, there's a paper, a white paper that Ben Goldacre, if you know him, the, the medical journal, he's a doctor and, uh, and uh, medical journalist, um, evidence-based medicine and, and evidence, evidence-based approaches to everything, basically. Um, uh, he was commissioned to produce a white paper a long time ago um, on uh, evidence-based education um, in the UK. And he wrote in the foreword to it about uh, the advent of evidence-based medicine in the UK, well, internationally, um, and um, this idea of having, you know, properly conducted uh, trials, double-blinded double trials to test out one instrument against another and, and find out which works. And of course, there was a problem with that, but... Um, routine very you know subject to gaming and all of that um of the results um but he talked about how in this is early in the 20th century and how the authoritarian figures in medicine were openly hostile to it um you know the heads of the royal colleges of surgeons and so on and because they were these unimpeachable authority figures and they they regarded it as a sort of a threat to their authority to have their their deeply held um, didactic kind of view, you know, to talk views uh, and convictions subject to scrutiny. And, and Goldacre described it as the transition from eminence-based medicine to evidence-based medicine. And it's the same thing, I think, throughout, you know, I see, but see particular parallels in that architecture, but always I've seen that. And, and yet you see these efforts starting to gain credence. So that's, I hope yeah. it's not just a bolt-on and that it, that it can permeate through the schools. Um, is that what you're, you're pitching for? Yeah, yeah, that is what we're pitching for. Yeah, we're trying to work it in uh, at all levels, you know, from and, and from early stages, you know, and, and trying to, yeah, like, you know, find places, find things that we can remove, you know, focuses that we don't need anymore in, in, in this climate emergency and instead, you know, bring in the, the, the education that we do need and, and the skills that we do need, you know, and work it through design studios and, and through technology and environment classes and through history classes, through all levels of the curriculum, you know. Send well, so, so us a link. Yeah, I will do. I will do. Uh, we'll I will put do. it in the show notes. Yeah, Jeff, I thought you were actually going to reference that other paper that you were wanting to talk about. The Who is it? Richardson, Devlin and Hogan from University College London. Small penises and fast cars. <laughs> Evidence for a psychological link. Which... <laughs> this is something I saw yesterday, yeah. Uh, Thematically it's... consistent with the uh, the eminence to evidence-based. Well, I, and I, I wonder on the ethics of this particular piece of research and what the academics in this case did. Um, we'll include it in the show notes too. Yeah. They, they convinced a bunch of men <laughs> that they had small penises. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, yeah. and, and then measured uh, the, uh, their interest in sports cars. Uh, <laughs> and there was a statistically significant increase. Uh, <laughs> From what I read... That oh. sounds like way more fun research than we do, Richard. We <laughs> From what yeah. I read of the methodology, it sounded quite reasonable, Jeff. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. I don't know how you get funding for that sort of research, but... Uh... <laughs> Oh man, uh, our mate Jason, he was uh, uh, 
we we had him down as a reporter when we launched the magazine many moons ago yeah. he did his degree in psychology and his his degree he recreated peter venkman's experiment from ghostbusters <laughs> <laughs> with the with the mind reading and the cards yeah, yeah. <laughs> and with a bit less sort of open misogyny uh, <laughs> um yeah. all right on that note uh thank you so much for your time <laughs> yeah it's been thanks, uh, thanks yeah, thanks, Jeff. Yeah, yeah no, like, uh, brilliant. Yeah, and we'll, we'll have to have you back on because there's so much. I mean, because you're doing fascinating work, um, and frankly, there's so much that we didn't get to talk about even today. You know. Um, yeah. Um. If there's, yeah. if there's anything going on, uh, Richard, that your firm, with regard to the office block research, I'm sure we'd be. I'm sure Jeff would be interested in. I saw the paper about... on. I, I started to read the paper on on data centers, which looked really interesting as well, actually. But uh, in terms of housing and forward thinking, it is. It could just be that my brain has latched onto it, and it's all I'm going to be thinking about for the next two days. But uh, it seems really interesting now. Um, yeah, I think it it could be really good. Yeah, it's, well, it's, it's, Richard it's, it's, gave a, a very good presentation on it recently at the AIARG, the Architects Ireland Research Group Conference, and. Uh, it was very good. Yeah, it was very good. Yeah. You should talk more on that, Richard. I think it's probably early stage at this this moment in time, isn't it? It needs yeah, that's the kind of idea that needs um, uh, rocket fuel put into it. I think, and it, you know, it needs serious head knocking to go on in terms of uh, whether it's policymakers and planners and and so on to kind of try and uh, uh, and force it through. You know, uh, this kind of uh, adaptive reuse and kind of uh, just more flexibility built into how we approach. Uh, uh, you know, existing buildings. You know, um, well, we'll gladly give you a platform to talk about it. You think? Yeah. It's... And what I might do, I, I'm going to mention another person I don't know, but is doing research on that called John Dobbin. Uh, he's looking at the transformation from office to resi. We're looking at resi, but also other functions, building functions as well. So there is a movement towards that. As Oliver said, I, I presented on it uh, a couple of weeks ago now, and we're working on a, a white paper on it. So when we get to that stage, yeah, definitely would like oh, to. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. brilliant. Yeah, crazy. All right, then. Well, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for listening. Uh, what do we do now, Jeff? Oh, yeah, join ACAN, join the ACB, join the IGBC. Uh, we are needy people, so we would feel validated by a five-star review. Nothing else will do. Um yeah, the magazine as well, remember? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Passive yeah. Plus. Yeah, subscribe. Advertise. Yeah. The Building and a Climate Emergency Research Lab at UCD. Oh, oh right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Yeah, yeah. Have you got uh, any kind of, um, uh, you got a new, are you promoting courses at the moment? Yeah, yeah. I'll send I'll send you a link to the the the, the research group's webpage and 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 to the master's program as well. Yeah. Thanks. And, uh, yeah. and the curriculum reform work. Brilliant. All right, then. Well, uh, thanks so much. Um, we'll say goodbye to everyone. Yeah. Goodbye. Cheers. Bye. Cheers. Yeah, so that, that's it, guys. And we, you know, um, thank you so much. That was, that was fantastic. Uh, actually, really good.